Well, today we're starting a new sermon series working through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And the series is called Colossians, Christ and Christ Alone. And to a certain extent, Colossians is a half a log. You see, we know it's from Paul. We know it's to the church at Colossae in response to what he's heard from Epaphras, who first preached the gospel in the city. But we don't know the exact reason Paul is writing. Scholars have for many decades debated what the problem facing the church in Colossae was, or what they call the Colossae heresy. Um, And uh, we do get a a glimmer of it from the text, but it ends up sort of being this half-a-log because we don't know the other side of the conversation. And it does does seem that the church has, has started to be influenced by false teachers who are telling them that the gospel itself is like a half a log. It's only half the story. It's only half the picture. That they need something else alongside the gospel. Something else for salvation. Something else to please God. Something else for fullness of life. And there are some hints that we get Uh, From the text, there's a push to combine uh, the Christian faith with local uh, pagan practices like angel worship. Or there's a hint that there's, you know, some kind of special secret knowledge or that there's a a special type of deliverance that people need. Or it's about observing this special holy day or that feast. And of course, from other books, we've already met the Judaizers who are saying to Gentile Christians that they need to be circumcised and to keep the law to be in Christ. It's all Christ plus something. You know? It's like you buy a a streaming service online, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, and it says you get all the benefits of those studios plus all this extra stuff. And and that's kind of what they're trying to sell to the people. Paul writes to reaffirm to them the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ for the Christian faith. And you know, it's helpful for us as well as we study this letter because instead of being a distraction in the half of the conversation we do have from Paul, we too are reminded of the centrality of Christ and Christ alone. Amidst all the things that people still try and add on to the gospel today. You know, we too are assured that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient for our salvation, is sufficient for fullness of life, is sufficient for our eternal hope. Christ in Christ alone. Now the passage that we're looking at today is the formal part of the letter. It's the formal part of any letter, particularly those from the ancient Near East. It covers who's it from, who it's to, the recipients, it has a greeting, and then it has a prayer of thanksgiving and a prayer for the recipients. And all Paul's letters in the New Testament start with this structure. And it might be easy to think that Paul is simply going through the formalities or the niceties in this situation, in this section. 
However, he takes these elements of formal communication and infuses them with the gospel and sets the scene for what he's going to say later. In all these formal elements of this letter, Paul's focus is on who we are in Christ and the sufficiency of the gospel. In verse 1 to 3, and uh, they're going to pop up on, on here, well, they will soon. In verse 1 to 3, we find that Paul and Timothy are writing this letter. They are writing it to the church in a city called Colossae. Colossae is a city in the Lysus River Valley in Asia Minor, that's modern-day southern western Turkey. And in verse 7, we see that the gospel had been taken there by Epaphras. Paul probably never visited the city. Or at least, we have no record of it. Epaphras most probably heard the gospel and was trained by Paul during his extended stay in Ephesus. Colossae is close to Heropolis and Laodicea. And in chapter 4, Paul sends greetings to people from those places. And he suggests to the Colossians that they might want to swap the letter that they have with the one that he wrote to the church at Laodicea. Uh, one that we don't have anymore. And it's early evidence that Paul had an idea that even though his writings were occasional, that's to a specific time and place, that what he had to say was important for other Christians to read. So, you know, we're doing something that Paul thought would have been good for, for, for Christians. Through the whole of the section, the key thing is not the physical person or address or the writer or the recipient, but as one commentator puts it, it's their spiritual address. You see, Paul doesn't just identify himself as Paul. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He hadn't been to Colossae and instead of using his usual a servant or a slave of Christ, here he uses an apostle. He's letting us know his credentials, that he's an apostle, someone sent by Jesus Christ. And of course, it refers back to his Damascus Road experience that's recorded in Acts and then repeated in two of Paul's speeches later in that book. He is an apostle because he has seen the risen Jesus Christ. Even it is, if he, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, as one untimely born. And in that encounter, he's specifically called to go and be a witness to the Gentiles. Paul's identity here is in Christ. Timothy, likewise, uh, is called brother. It shows the affection that Paul has for him but also the connection they have, the family ties that they have, being in Christ. And the recipients are also given two addresses, in Colossae and in Christ. And it's this latter one that defines them. In both these two addresses, Paul, uh, <clears throat> in between these two addresses, Paul identifies them as God's holy people, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. They are people set aside for God, uh, brought together as family because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, as a Jew, has his understanding of what constitutes God's people, God's holy people, changed by his encounter with Jesus. 
He sees the true Israel now as all people who have put their faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. And later in Colossians, he will uh, uh, bring that out uh, very clearly. He then moves on to offer a blessing. Again, it could be simply a formality, but it reinforces how he has identified himself, Timothy, and his recipients in Colossae. He offers them grace and peace to you from God our Father. Grace is God's undeserved benevolence and love. It's been shown to us in Christ's coming and revealing God's love to us and Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and is being raised to life again so that we might have new and full life. Peace has the underlying Jewish idea of shalom or wholeness, a right set of relationships, a right matrix of relationship with God, with one another as God's people, with those outside the faith that we would love our enemies, with the created world and with our possessions as well. And Paul reinforces the identity we have in Christ by affirming it as coming from God, our Father, our Father. We are brothers and sisters because God has become our Father. That's a good place to move on to Paul's prayer of thanksgiving in verse 3 to 7. It's a good segue because Paul starts by saying, we thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He ties God our Father with the fact that God is the Father of Jesus Christ, that they have this special relationship. It's because we are in Christ that that God is our Father. We've been brought into that relationship with God through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. In the prologue to his gospel, John articulates it well when uh, when he says, all who receive him, talking of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God most high, not by natural birth or the will of a husband but by God. Paul gives thanks for the church at Colossae as he hears the reports about them from Epaphras. He gives thanks for their faith in in Jesus Christ and the love that they have for all God's people. You know, Paul is able to quantify the trust that they have in Jesus Christ. He's able to see that it's a real faith because it's displayed by the way in which they love and care for each other. And in the early church, that love for all God's people was, you know, across the divides of the day, Jew and Gentile, uh, uh, Greek and barbarian, uh, free and slave, men and women. The church would have been the only place where these people actually came together in their society. And the fact that they were there and they loved one another and cared for one another was evidence that they had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Often the plus people want to put on to faith in Christ is that of works. You know, faith plus works equals salvation. But Paul does not see that as such here. He sees that love is an outworking, a natural outworking of faith in Christ. And their faith in Christ is demonstrated in that unity and care for one another as God's people. Paul takes it further. He says this faith and love springs from the hope that's stored up in heaven, about which they have already heard in the true message of the gospel. 
And you know, we often think of faith, love, and hope as things that we have. You know, they're, they're things that we do or have. We think of them in a, in a subjective way. But Paul identifies our hope here in an objective way. It is an object that is our hope. Not that longing, not that pie in the sky kind of you know, hope for the future that we have, but in actual fact, something concrete and real. Paul identifies our, you know, it's based on the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say it again and again during this sermon and this sermon series. It's based on the incarnation, on Jesus' life and teaching, Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus being raised to, from the dead. You know, the hope that we have of eternal life comes from the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the hope of our resurrection, of our eternal life. Uh, his ascension into heaven. When Christ ascended into heaven, he was able to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within all of us. And our hope for the future is in Christ's imminent return. That is the hope we have. That is the hope that is stored up for us in heaven. That is the hope that inspires faith that results in love. Paul ties it down even further by telling the church at Colossae it was told to them in the same way as it was to everybody else. A faithful servant, in this case Epaphras, openly shared it and explained it to them. And it took root in them and grew and produced fruit. The emphasis on the same way, of course, acts as a polemic against the false teachers who wanted to add on a secret or a special revelation that only they knew. Uh, you know, and it's something of a warning to us as well. You know, have you heard this teaching? It's essential and important. Or that teaching, you know, that drags you away from Jesus. It's the same for you and I. You know, our faith put into action and our love for others springs from that same hope, that same gospel truth, from Christ and Christ alone. A gospel that was shared with us in exactly the same way as it has from the beginning, by a faithful witness to Jesus who shared their faith with us. An unbroken chain going back to those first apostles. And maybe for you it was a family member or your whole family right from birth or it was a friend or a colleague or someone you met who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you shock horror maybe it was even a Presbyterian minister or a preacher you know <clears throat> and um, that faith is one that as we see it in each other we should give thanks for it and we should pray that it grows which is a good segue into the third section of the passage this morning. Because in verse 9 to 14, Paul turns to pray for the church at Colossae. He gives, he'd given thanks that they'd responded to the gospel in such a positive way, and now he prays that they might grow in their Christian faith. And his prayer is that they might grow with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now, when I was working with youth, uh, and a youth worker for many years, one of the key questions that young Christians would often come to me about was, you know, what's God's will for my life? 
You know, and for them it was a really question of what does God want me to do? The musicians kind of hoped that it would be that they'd be successful and wonderful Christian musicians and, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but yeah, and, and, you know, that's really quite normal for people in that development stage. What am I going to do with my life, you know? Um, it's the formative years. It's one of the things that you want to be able to, you know, sort out. But we all often get the idea that God's will is tied up with that sort of thing. God, what do you want me to do? I guess we all want the Damascus Road experience in as much as that we hear from God something like, I want you to be a, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. You know, we want that assurance. But as a Jewish man, Paul acquaints God's will as being what God has revealed about God's self in scriptures. You know, God has revealed his will to us in the scriptures of the Old Testament through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the teaching of the apostles. And it's that that Paul is praying that they would know. You know, God has shown us how he wants us to live. And Paul's prayer is that uh, the church at Colossae would grow in the knowledge of that. That's my prayer for all of us. Wisdom in Jewish uh, thought and Jewish scriptures has the idea of being able to make decisions in life that lead us to live in a way that pleases God. It's in actual fact having that, uh, that decision-making ability to live in a way that pleases God. You know, and we are not left to do that alone. But rather, here Paul says, the Holy Spirit is our help and our guide in that. You know, when Christ ascended into heaven, he was able to send the Spirit to indwell all who believed. So we would know God's abiding presence, but also so that we might be led into all truth and remember the words of Jesus. And you know that Spirit's indwelling in us and revealing the words of Jesus to us would produce Christ-like fruit as we walk in step with the Spirit. The Spirit enables us to live a life pleasing to God in every way. And then Paul uh, defines growth in four ways. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. You know, as we more, know more of God's will and we find the wisdom to put it into action into our life, we will put it into action in our lives. And that will result in good things. We would grow in our care for each other, for our care and compassion for the least and the lost. As we've had this, the, the um, season of creation, our care for God's creation. And there's an often a debate within the church that we should just focus on sharing the gospel, not on doing all these good things for people per se. But, you know, care for the poor. Reaching and reacting and being involved in, in dealing with the social evils and ills and issues and problems of this world with wise God-honouring solutions is an actual part, part being representative, representatives of God's kingdom. You know, bringing beauty and creativity into the world as well is part of, you know, being representatives of God's kingdom. Growing in the knowledge of God, that's the second one. Growing to know God's will or word is not just an academic exercise or a way of knowing about God. It's getting to know the abiding presence and love that God has for us. 
You know, we're invited to know Jesus personally as he dwells within us, to know God as our loving Father, the Holy Spirit as our comforter and guide. Now, I've just had to go gone through this process called developing a, a ministry development plan. And uh, I've made some plans for, for personal and um, professional growth. And a key part of that for me was looking at personal spiritual growth. And I've set goals around uh, scripture reading and also feeding my mind with good academic and theological books. But also, alongside that, I've decided to keep a journal. Dear diary. No, just, you know. Uh, to reflect... Uh, reflect on in my daily life, in my daily devotions, even in that reading what can be dry academic books, you know, reflecting and writing down where I encounter God and how I'm growing in that relationship with him. The third one that Paul says is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have endurance and patience. Paul prays that we may know not only the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, but the power of God as well. You know, the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That power that comes from God, the Holy Spirit. And his focus here is not on the miraculous or on gifts, but rather our ability to persevere in the faith, to give us the strength to keep on keeping on, to keep on following and living and loving for Jesus in the face of external pressure. Endurance refers to dealing with outside forces and with all those things that disturb us on an internal level. Maybe the people that get right up our nose. You know, patience speaks of dealing with the things from an internal perspective. I don't know about you, but boy, do I need God's strength for those things. Finally, giving joyful thanks to the Father. That in that, we may find joy and give thanks and praise to God. Christianity is, should be joy-filled and full of thanks to God. And Paul had already modelled that for us in this passage because he had started his prayer for the church at Colossae with thanksgiving and rejoicing. And here he finishes off his prayer by doing the same thing, by telling them to rejoice and give thanks, focusing on why we should give joyous thanksgiving. It's the Father who has put us right with himself, qualified us for his kingdom, made us part of his kingdom. It is God our Father who sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from the domain of darkness and welcome us into his kingdom light, to be his people. It is God who has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. The Son in whom we have redemption. You know, who has bought our freedom, set us free from bondage by forgiving us our sins. Well, this is kind of an introduction to Paul's letter. And while it's only an introduction, he does manage to set the scene for the rest of the letter. The Christian faith is not learning something different or a new secret knowledge. It is becoming more and more aware, more and more thankful for, more and more guided by, more and more filled by the wonderful truth of the gospel. More and more of Christ and Christ alone. 
There are a lot of things in this world that would try and distract us. There are a lot of things that people and things that might try and tell us that the gospel is a half a log and we need to hear the other part of the conversation. But Paul would remind us and continue to pray for us that we might find our identity, our address, our hope and the fullness of God in Christ and Christ alone. In Christ and Christ alone.